Good morning, church. My name is Lisa. It is good to be with you today here in Minor. Uh, it's good to be with all of you who are with us virtually online, on the YouTubes. Um, thanks for coming. However you've come today, I'm glad that you're here. Some of us come with a lot of cares and concerns. Some of us come with having had great victories. Some of us come with a little bit of skepticism or with a whole lot of faith. However you've come this morning, I'm really glad that you're here. I'm really glad to get to share these next few moments with you, to have shared these first few moments with you. I'm so glad you're here. I don't know if we need this reminder, but I'm gonna say it anyway. I'm gonna remind us that the creator God of the whole universe is with us this morning. Ooh, the creator God of the whole universe is here with us this morning. The scriptures tell us that God inhabits the praises of his people and reminds us that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. There's joy and comfort in being aware of the presence of God. And even as great as it is to be aware of God's presence, I'm compelled to incline myself to the fact that God isn't just here. He's going to be speaking to us through his word. He has already spoken to us through the forms of worship we have already practiced. And as we spend these next few moments of together, together in the book of Mark, Considering the nature of the kingdom of God, let us take hold of those truths. God is here, and God longs to speak to us today. I'm just going to give you a moment, take a breath maybe, adjust your posture in the seat, remind yourself of that truth. Thank you, God, for that. We're a couple of months into our study of the book of Mark, and as we've been exploring life in the kingdom and the person of Jesus, we've focused on a few central questions that come from our anchor verse, Mark chapter 1, verse 15. The time has come, Jesus said, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. The questions we've been centering are, well, what is the good news? What does it mean to believe? And what does it mean to repent? And Jocelyn just reminded us that we're in this season of Lent that's actually about repentance. It's a 40-day period between Ash Wednesday, last Thursday, and, and Easter Day. And it's a, it's, it's a time where we, uh, we focus, we ex spiritually examine ourselves and we practice repentance. Pastor Rich Velotis uh, describes what it means to repent like this. To repent is to acknowledge that a life turned away from God doesn't contribute to human flourishing. And when Jesus preaches repentance, it's because the kingdom of heaven has come near, because God has come close to us. Repentance is about joyfully and intentionally adjusting one's life to this reality. Many of us have, have made some commitments over the next 40 days, either to refrain from things or to incorporate new practices. And let's be honest, some of us have already struggled to keep those commitments. <laughs> some of us have done great, 
But here's the good news. Lent is not about performance or perfection. This season is about repentance. It's about returning and coming back every single time the temptation has overtaken us. So don't be weary, beloved. This is about repentance. The good news of the kingdom has drawn near, and it doesn't matter if you've already failed. Guess what? Get back up and keep going. Don't miss it. Jesus meets us and reminds us that we can still joyfully and intentionally adjust our lives to his nearness and to his goodness. Now, maybe for some of you, you didn't actually think about something to do during Lent. That's okay. You can start now. All right, I'm going to suggest a few things. We've got, uh, we have a, a Mark reading guide. So you can check that out every single day, very short reading through the scripture, and one question to reflect on. If you've been trying to think about, like, what should I do? How should I spend my time? What practice should I incorporate? The reading guide is an option. Every weekday, we also pray together as a community on Zoom, 7 o'clock in the morning. Maybe that's a step that you can take. Maybe that's a commitment that you can make. It doesn't have to be every day, but it can be. Pick a few days. Maybe you haven't joined a small group yet. Maybe you've been thinking about trying to figure out if you want to live life in this community. I would encourage you, during Lent, check it out. Maybe that's the practice that you can incorporate during this season. Today's uh, passage is, is rather agrarian in nature, as you probably heard. It's about seeds, and it's about plants, and it's about farming, and, and all kinds of um, interesting things. Um, Jesus is back to teaching the crowds, and like very good teachers, he doesn't always just spoon-feed right? He creates a little bit of curiosity by telling parables. All right, I got some good laughs earlier this week while I was um, scrolling Facebook. Obviously, I didn't give up socials for Lent. Um, (laughs) It was called Selected, Selected Negative Teaching Evaluations of Jesus of Jesus Christ, all right? So the idea here is that Jesus is a teacher, and some students, his students are giving him feedback. Y'all who are professors and teachers, you're going to love this. Those of you who are students are probably also going to love this. I thought it was, it was fun, so, so here's a few just, you know, just for funsies. Here we go. Very inconvenient class. Always holds lectures on top of mountains in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, but never close to the main campus. I wanted to like this class, but on the first day, he submerged us in a river instead of going over the syllabus, and that was kind of a lot. Uh, Won't give straight answers. I asked him if something was going to be on the test, and he said, you say that it will be, (laughs) and stared at me with no expression. I mean, come on, bro. Feels like a class for farmers. Hope you like talking about seeds, wheat seeds, mustard seeds, 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 seeds. (laughs) That's our Jesus. We're going to be talking about seeds today, and Jesus isn't exactly offering straight answers. He's still using parables to describe important things about the kingdom. 
Last week, Justin taught us on the parable of the sower and the seed, and today we're looking at the parables of the mustard seed and the growing seed. In Jewish tradition, parables were meant to be strung together, each one showing a little bit more of a different angle on the topic. Parables are descriptive, and these kingdom parables aren't all necessarily pointing to the same aspect of the kingdom. It's kind of like that illustration about the elephant, right? You guys know this one, right? Five guys blindfolded, everybody's giving the description of the element. elephant. One is holding a tail, one is touching a leg, one has a hold of the ear, one has a hold of the trunk, one has a hold of the tusks. They all give a description that are vastly different and each and every one 100% accurate. The parables are like that. They describe the same thing but different aspects of the same thing. The three parables of the seed are about the kingdom of God. Each one of them is unique. They're descriptive and they're meant to arouse our interest, to pique our curiosity for learning and understanding more. And one of the things that I love about this scripture is it is the very first time where Jesus outright says, the kingdom of God is like, okay? First time, he's been doing lots of miracles, he's been engaging the crowd in a number of ways, but this is the first time where he's very blatantly saying, this is what the kingdom of God is like. And when people do things for the very first time, we ought to pay attention. So I wonder if we can place ourselves in the midst of a crowd a couple thousand years ago and have a little bit of anticipation and expectation about what Jesus is going to say. He's making his first big statement about this kingdom of God that he's been saying has drawn near. But instead of rolling out this huge declaration, he uses these little brief parables. One is formed in, in the form of a statement, and the other is framed as a question. Both describe important aspects of the kingdom and are applicable to our circumstances as 21st century Christians living in the midst of global tension and war being wrought in Europe. They speak to the reality of finding our way through post-pandemic um, economic and social emotional realities, even as we hold in tension things like the beauty of crocuses, my favorite little prophet flowers that herald the springtime is coming. They announce for the very first time the daffodils are coming, the tulips are coming, the cherry blossoms are coming, and we hold all of this intention. And Jesus' kingdom understands that and has something to say to us. On this side of eternity, our lives are always a mixture of joy and pain, peace and strife, sorrow and laughter, courage and fear, loss and gain. So how does Jesus step into our world and tell us about his? Well, he first begins by naming the importance of, of hearing, of, of paying attention. The two seed parables in today's passage are tied to the parable of the sower of the seed that Justin preached about last week. So we've got that one, and then we have two other ones. But right in the middle, there's these words that he brings about a lamp and about hearing. 
that are really crucial groundwork for the first time that he launches headway into describing the kingdom. So the passage says, he said to them, do you bring a lamp to put it under a bowl or a bed? Instead, don't you put it on a stand? For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed, and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. If anyone has ears to hear, let them hear. Consider carefully what you hear, he continued. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and even more. Those who have will be given more. As for those who do not have, even what they have will be taken from them. So in the midst of these earthy agrarian parables, why does Jesus talk about a lamp? It's like it doesn't even fit. <laughs> he does it because Jesus is the light of the world. He is both the message and the messenger. And he's bringing his message about the kingdom to all humanity. And so far in the book of Mark, though, Jesus has kept his identity as Messiah a secret. He has silenced demons who know his divinity and his authority. He has told people not to tell others about the miraculous healings and interactions that they have had with him. But the time is approaching when what has been hidden is about to be revealed. He's about to bring out into the open what up until this point has been concealed about his identity and his kingdom. So he tells this little thing about a lamp and he reminds them, I'm the light of the world, without using those words. And I'm about to make a big announcement. And one of the things I want us to bear in mind today as we hear about the kingdom is that is that Jesus wants religiously complacent people to move from complacency to curiosity. Sometimes we have a tendency to know all the things and we forget to be curious again. And for those who are still trying to figure out if the ways of Jesus are for them, but have been curious, what Jesus longs for is for you to move from curiosity to belief. From curiosity to belief. So he urges them right here about the lamp, if anyone has ears to hear, let them hear. I think of it as him saying, hey, listen up, you're not gonna wanna miss this. He goes on even further to say, don't just hear what I'm saying, think about and thoroughly contemplate what you're hearing. It's like saying, don't just hear me and let just like it go in one ear and come out the other, but really consider it. Consider carefully what you hear. Because remember, he knows he's about to jump into his first parable specifically about the kingdom of God. So he's putting some intentionality towards getting their attention. If anyone has ears to hear, let them hear. And he follows that up with a peculiar, if not honestly, slightly off-putting <laughs> phrase about measuring and giving and taking. It sounds like Jesus is opposed to those who have very little, doesn't it? Even what little they have will be taken from them. But if we remain curious and ask a few more questions of Jesus and the scriptures, we actually can see that that's not it at all. He's specifically talking 
about how careful consideration will be given. The measure he's alluding to is, will you give careful consideration to the, to the teachings that I'm about to share with you? For people who are, are just in the crowd to see if he's going to do another miracle, who've basically come for a show, they aren't going to understand what he's about to communicate because they haven't made an effort to hear or be curious. For those who are genuinely curious about Jesus and who keenly listen to him, they're the ones who will get more because they're more invested. I, I think of it like this. Um, two examples. Anyone, uh, you know, have a second language? Learned a second language? Show of hands? A few. Okay, so maybe this will resonate. Um, I think it's like learning and maintaining a second language. When you use it, uh, practice it. When you, when you listen to music or watch TV in that second language, uh, you continue to learn more, right? If, however, you rarely use it, even what vocabulary you do have gets lost. It's just, it's just gone. It gets difficult to remember, and it goes away. The measure you use matters. All right, here's another example. And I, I, I will commit to you all, I started running again. I won't always preach about you know, running exercises and, and use them as examples, but it feels really <laughs> uh, relevant. Um, so using exercise uh, as an example, I'm training for the cherry blossom. Any other cherry blossom runners? I know some of you in here are. Okay, excellent. Hope you're training. Um, it's been six years since I've run consistently. Uh, in 2016, I ran the Cherry Blossom, a 10-miler and a half, and six years, y'all, plus two years of that is pandemic. I feel every single stinking mile. <laughs> the measure I use in my training is the measure I'll receive. If I get out and run one mile every day, I will do great at the very first mile of that 10-mile run. I will do great. But if over the course of these next few weeks, I run consistently, four or five days consistently, and I stretch that out to eight or nine miles on the day of the race, I'm going to do okay. I will cross that finish line with a whole lot of joy. I will get my medal, and then I will consume every piece of food I can see because I'm starving when I'm done running. But imagine if I lose interest after race day and I don't continue training. Everything that I worked for over time will diminish because the measure I've applied to my exercise regimen will have changed. The measure you use is the measure that will be used for you. Having a learning posture is critical to understanding the kingdom of God, and Jesus uses words like hearing. He urges his listeners to hear well so that they can gain understanding. And then he dives all the way into his first kingdom parable. This is what the scripture says. He also said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground, night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full, full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. 
Now, this parable is fairly straightforward and simple. It's a parable that serves as a very important reminder that God is the one who is in control. God's kingdom grows and expands at God's doing and in God's timing. And while we're called to remain curious and to have a listening posture, we can never be in control. Curious, yes. In control, no. This is really good news to so many of us who are hard-charging, fast-paced, save-the-world types, isn't it? Those of us who are transplants to a city like D.C. have come this far, and we believe we've arrived where we've arrived by our own work. And when we overlay that mindset onto our spiritual journeys, before long we will have missed the point of this parable. God is the initiator and the sustainer of growth. Once the seeds are sown, we can rest assured that God is working. He's working in our coming and in our going. I was clearly reminded of that this morning with the Smiths. He's working in our resting. God is working in our calm and in our anxiousness. God is working. God is working in the dark. God is working in our silence. God is working in our chaos and our stillness. God is working in the noise. God is working in our despair. God is working in the seen and in the unseen. God is working in the scattered and broken things that all we wish is that we could gather them back up together. God is working even when we don't see it. And lest we forget that this is only just about us, let us remind ourselves that God isn't just working in our individual lives, that God is working in and through systems as well. In the chaos of affordable housing in our city, God is at work. In the violence and warmongering in Ukraine, God is at work. In the tragedy of mass incarceration in our country, God is at work. In, in inequitable and underperforming school systems, God is at work. We may not see or know how God works, but the good news of this parable is that the kingdom does not depend on us. And the harvest is guaranteed. That is good news. There's a prayer that I love that's a great reminder of this truth. It's called Prophets of a Future Not Our Own. It's attributed to Oscar Romero, a priest in El Salvador who died a martyr's death while working for the liberation of his people. The prayer was written by Bishop Ken Untener. And, and I'm going to read it. I'm just gonna take, it is going to take a minute to read it. Um, and normally we don't read prayers in our sermons, but you know what? We're doing it today. And as I read this prayer, I just would invite you to hold these words. Allow the Spirit to just impress on you what, what is important in this prayer. It helps every now and then to take a step back and take a long view. The kingdom is not only beyond our efforts, it is even beyond our vision. We accomplish in our lifetime only a tiny fraction of the magnificent enterprise that is God's work. Nothing we do is complete, which is a way of saying that the kingdom always lies beyond us. 
No statement says all that could be said. No prayer fully expresses our faith. No confession brings perfection. No pastoral visit brings wholeness. No program accomplishes the church's mission. No set of goals and objectives includes everything. This is what we are about. We plant the seeds that one day will grow. We water seeds already planted, knowing that they hold future promise. We lay foundations that will need further development. We provide yeast that produces effects far beyond our capabilities. We cannot do everything. And there is a sense of liberation in realizing that. This enables us to do something and to do it very well. It may be incomplete, but it is a beginning. It is a step along the way, an opportunity for the Lord's grace to enter and to do, the, to do the rest. We may never see the end results, but that is the difference between the master builder and the worker. We are workers, not master builders. Ministers, not messiahs. We are prophets of a future that is not our own. We are workers, not master builders. We are ministers, not messiahs. The growing seed parable beckons us to remember that God is in control. We can rest and release as we are reminded of the truth that the yoke of the kingdom is easy. And it doesn't depend on us. So let me ask you this morning, where do you need to rest? What do you need to release? The final seed parable is, is a rich and complex parable about a mustard seed. And Jesus says in the scriptures, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like or what parable shall we use to describe it? It's like a mustard seed which is the smallest of all seeds on the earth, yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. So I love that he begins this parable with a question, right? Um, instead of a statement. It's hypothetical, and it re-engages the imagination of his listeners. It's not like he's going on a diatribe. He's saying, what should we say? It's hypothetical, so they're waiting for the answer. He compares the kingdom of God to a tiny mustard seed that grows into one of the largest plants in the garden and provides shelter and refuge for birds. So here's the easy application, right? It's a parable about growth, obviously. <laughs> While it starts small, minuscule even, it will be surprisingly large in the end. And all of that is right. But there is a little more going on here. Jesus' first hearers would have heard this and perhaps resonated deeply, or they may have felt completely confused. The comparison to a small mustard seed may have produced a lot of head nodding like, yeah, that's right. Because remember, they were a very small community under a great oppressive Roman occupation. This parable may have sounded like good news to them because it would have reinforced the notion that God was going to reestablish the throne of David and deliver them from the tyranny of Rome. 
their tiny existence would someday be tens of thousands of times larger. And they would have been like, yeah, that's right. We are a tiny mustard seed. Even the mention of the birds perching on the branches would have recalled vivid imageries of greatness from the books of Daniel and the prophet Ezekiel. The great empires of the day were compared to the mighty cedars of Lebanon, the fabulous forests and the mountains uh, at the north of Israel. The trees of Lebanon were the most impressive trees in their experience and served as metaphors for military might. Listen to these descriptions of the cedar and the great world tree from Ezekiel 17 and Daniel 4. See if it sounds familiar. On the mountain heights of Israel, I will plant it. It will produce branches and bear fruit and become a splendid cedar. Birds of every kind will nest in it. They will find shelter in the shade of its branches. From Daniel. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong. Its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under, the wild, uh, under it, the wild animals found shelter, and the birds lived in its branches. From, every, from it, every creature was fed. So the birds represented the Gentile nations who would find shelter and refuge in the mighty tree, the nation of Israel. The imagery from both of these passages represent the inclusion of those outside of the covenant that God made with Israel. God's kingdom has always been about refuge and inclusiveness. However, Jesus does a bit of dismantling here. He dismantles their expectations and their illusions of grandeur by replacing the great world cedar tree with a mustard plant. This is where the confounding head scratching would begin. It was supposed to be about a, mustard, uh, about a, a cedar, majestic and strong and glorious and grand. Jesus, you're using a, a mustard plant? Why use such an insignificant, common, and undesirable plant? Mustard plants were everywhere in the ancient Near East. They were like weeds that farmers had to clear from their gardens so that they could grow valuable crops. They would quickly take over gardens and invade the space of well-maintained plants and vegetables. Jewish law even forbade the planting of mustard seeds in a garden. That's how pesky they were. Why describe the kingdom of God with imagery that turns out to look like a big weed rather than a grand cedar? Was Jesus referring to God's kingdom as something that is insignificant and common? Well, as compared to a cedar tree that represented empire and political power, yes, Jesus wasn't ever going to be the political savior that they had hoped that he would be. He was not the savior that they anticipated. He appeared to be a blasphemer. He sounded like a revolutionary. His crown was a crown of thorns. Still, he surely was ushering in a kingdom one that would be marked by deliverance and liberation, healing and restoration, 
radical love of neighbor and enemy. Though small, it would grow. Not through pomp and circumstance, not through militarized aggression. It would grow through small but powerful things like humility and justice and mercy. His kingdom, in comparison to what most people expected, was so insignificant, like a mustard seed. The parable of the mustard seed reminds us that the kingdom of God is expansive and inclusive, if not also surprisingly subtle. It is a place of refuge for those who are seemingly outsiders to find belonging and safety in and with God. Friends, Jesus may have to do some, some disrupting and some dismantling in us. But our task as his followers is to remain curious rather than complacent. And for those who are still considering being followers of Jesus, the invitation is to move from curiosity to belief. In this mustard seed king and kingdom that's ever growing, it is for us and beyond us. If anyone has ears to hear, let us hear. Let us remember God's invitation to rest and release because God is in control. Let us remember God's kingdom is a refuge for each and every one of us who will come to God. Let's pray. Jesus, you, you are a great teacher. You are wise and, and you know how to capture the hearts of your people. And still you are confounding sometimes. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear the good news of the kingdom of God and give us courage to repent the one million times that it will take us to continue turning back to you. We love you, Lord, and and we're grateful for your parables. We're grateful for the illustrations of the seed and the kingdom. Keep our hearts tuned to your words. Impress on us what we need to rest in and what we need to release and where we need to be more curious about you again and where we need to move from curiosity to belief. And by the power of your spirit, move us to be more like you so that the world may know the good news of the kingdom of God. And we pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.